Welcome, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z, Jeffrey Salaji. So glad to have you here. Season one is afoot, and we are kicking it off by exploring not just human nature, but particularly the facet of fathers and fathering, the impact and the influence they have on the lives of my guests. Hold tight, stay tuned, and listen in because we are about to journey into a series of conversations. It is incredible. Let's get into it. Let's get started. Here we go. Welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Salaji. My guest today, Luis J. Rodriguez, poet, author, novelist, community activist, and I'm really, really grateful to have you here today, Luis. Welcome. Well, thank you. What a pleasure it is. Uh, we've known each other for many, many years, so it's good. That's right. We met back in 1997. Oh my God! Yeah, <laughs> you were, you were, you were, must have been two years old. <laughs> I was 25. So yeah. that was 20 years ago. And uh, you know, just a little bit about our our connection since you brought it up. Uh, we've had a chance to do some healing work, some ritual work, some men's work in the woods for for decades. And so we've gotten to know each other in the lodge, in the room, in a really a meaningful context. And one of the reasons um, one of the reasons I'm excited to have a conversation with you today is because one, we have a familiar context. We've seen what the impact of fathers are, the impact of society is and the lives of men and the way men impact society. But another level is because I've learned so much from you at so many levels. I see you as a steward of a lot of different kinds of histories that most people don't get exposed to. And I think you're a, a critical and important voice who not only has a lot to teach people, but has a lot of realness about you. Every time we have a chance to to be together, um, my appreciation and my understanding of your experience and your journey and your, you, what you've overcome, what you've created, what you've been able to do just continues to grow. So I'm, I'm really, I mean it real sincerely that I'm really glad you're here for all those reasons. Wow, that's a blessing. Thank you so much. So I wanted to start with a little bit more about you in, in, in a minute, but I kind of want to look at the time. Um, what's it like for you as someone who grew up as an activist to see what's happening with Black Lives Movement mm-hmm. in our country today? Yeah. Well, as you can imagine, I'm quite, um, I've been quite excited by all this myself. I, I see that the way life develops is kind of is a spiral and I see that the spiral is going to a higher level even now. I was run in the 60s. And so anybody, and you know a lot of people who have been, uh, you know we carry the 60s like almost a big banner, which is not really right. But we, you know, we came from the 60s. Well, I think this period of time has overwhelmed the 60s. I think it's even more significant in many ways. And um, uh, I mean, there was more violence and there was more, I mean, when you have, people talk about Trump, man, Trump's pretty bad, but Nixon was horrible. And mm-hmm. there was a certain period that we were in that was really rough and people were being killed, as you know. There was a lot of death and everything. But I think what this period, to me, is more of a big shift in the whole country. I don't mm-hmm. think we were quite shifting adequately in the 60s. I think we were, there was a lot of movement with young people to shift. But everything mm-hmm. kind of went like a rubber band. You pulled it up. A lot of things went back. You know, drugs came in. People just went back to making money. You know, there's materialism came in. A lot of the stuff was gone. 
A few of us carried ideals, but it didn't really last. I think this is a period in which people are really like, are not going to be in that overbend mode. I think we either got to move the center of our culture or, or things that are going to be in this very high tension for a long time. Yeah, you can feel the tension. Are you seeing that uh, in, in your community? Yeah, because, you know, I'm in the second largest Mexican Central American community in the U.S. And uh, so it's got intense poverty. Some of the homelessness is very big here. And there's a significant African-American population here, too. So uh, we have everything you can imagine. But there's also, I would say, a lower middle class group of people who are suffering now because yeah. they're getting hit. The pandemic and the economy and everything, they're losing homes and everything. They actually started around 2008. People barely got up there. Now they got knocked down and now things have gotten worse. So we're seeing, again, this community get hit. But what I've noticed is the activity in the community. Um, everybody seems to be united that black lives um, is important even for the black and brown, I mean, for the brown people here. In other words, there's no real big like, oh, well, what about me? It's more like if you liberate the black lives of our society, of our country, you liberate everybody at some level. And yeah. they know it. But there is a lot of brown issues, of course. And so course. they're trying to integrate it. But I don't think they see it as, hey, that's black people, that's us. They see it as this is part of their struggle. You know, when the uh, George Floyd murder happened, one of the things that moved me about it and, and, the, and the struggle of Black Lives uh, Matter, of the movement, is, is a recognition of trauma. Mm. You know, who's allowed to actually be acknowledged for their trauma? And it finally felt like it reached the breaking point because it was so cumulative and so obvious that the boiling and the eruption of, okay, tr this is traumatic. And, and yeah. finally people started listening. Finally people started feeling. Finally enough people couldn't deny anymore and could see mm -hmm. after, you know, generations and generations of struggle. And, and, and I see, you know, our work that we've done in Mendocino together and your journey in particular as an author and as an advocate and a social and a community activist, as someone who is familiar with struggle mm -hmm. from revolutionary and political struggle mm -hmm. to the, the struggle of, of poverty, the struggle of immigration, yeah. to the struggle of being a person of color. And, and I really would love to hear some thoughts about that in terms of your own journey around the issue of, of struggle, of trauma yeah. in, in our American society. So for those who may not know who I am, um, I uh, was actually a very troubled young man, as you know. Mm -hmm. I, um, I was in, in a gang, I mean, heavily involved. I wasn't just lightweight or sitting on the side. Uh, I was in rob robberies, I was in burglaries, I was in uh, shootings. Uh, I was arrested for s several times in jails, juvenile hall, and in two adult facilities. But what really... I was a heroin addict for seven years. What really changed me was the 60s. And it was, the at the time, the, the social justice struggles of the time. It was the black community. It was Malcolm X. All that stuff spoke to me. It wasn't that Mexicans couldn't speak to me. We didn't have a media star like that. Cesar Chavez came up and, yeah, that's great, and maybe a couple other people. But the black community spoke. When I read Malcolm X, I was homeless and I would walk into the downtown library and I picked up all these books and Malcolm X books just like, it was shearing to me and it was important. It woke me up like all these books and I wanted to um, know more. And I also wanted to contribute at another level. Eventually I got to the point where it was so powerful for me that I had to stop, which is very hard to do, heroin, 
um, I had to stop getting in trouble. I had to stop going to jail. I had to stop being a criminal at any level. I've, I've been free, crime free for 50 years. Uh, and it was really hard because I was very criminally engaged. You know what I'm saying? So, is, but the same with heroin and everything. It was like I had to move away from that crazy life in every way I could so that I can then recenter myself around we need a new world. I got involved in the more militant wing of the Chicano movement, um, uh, included the, the Brown Berets, AIM, the Black Panthers, included some of the most military guys. And I was saying militant, I'm saying people were about revolution. I was to all for it, you know. Um, and then, of course, I learned that it isn't going to happen like that. You have to uh, learn and you have to organize and you can't just do it because, hey, I'm going to be a Che Guevara. You know, you romanticize these things. You have to organize. You have to really work with people. It takes time. And that's what I eventually learned. This is not going to be like, I'm not going to be Che Guevara. I'm going to be Luis Rodriguez in this country for the for these issues that we're in. So I then put myself in the long haul, which is good. It takes a while to learn that. And then I'm in it for the long haul. I've created a really strong community here in the uh, Northeast San Fernando Valley, which is part of Los Angeles, as you know. But it's that Mexican community I was telling you about. And we have a strong community. I mean, we, it's all based on Tia Chucha's culture center and bookstore that we created, me and my wife, 20, almost 20 years now. And, Amazing. Uh, yeah. And we serve 18 to 20,000 people a year. We have a lot of things going on. Even with the pandemic, we went all virtual and we've done better virtually than we've done when we weren't, which is amazing for the beautiful young people that we have as our staff. So anyway, I feel very responsible for that community. And so we're constantly learning and interjecting and trying to gather ourselves and solidify what we know so we can be there for the long haul. I'm getting old, man. I turned 66. Yeah, I saw um, that. Yeah, yeah you're, so. you're, you're a wood horse in Chinese astrology. Is that what it is? Yeah, 54. Is that, so 66 is my brother. He's a, he's a fire horse. Yeah. So wood horse would be before that. But wow. yeah, you're 66 now. And yeah. you just, you, you jump from youth all the way up to Tia, uh, Tia Chuchas and, and yeah. the wonderful community work you're doing now. Yeah. And I can't help but think of the arc and the relationship of books from finding Malcolm X yeah. to freeing yourself from those early, yeah. I guess what we'd call mindsets now right. um, of, of gang life and, and yeah. how to orient towards society. Yeah. to a more intense, like, okay, we need to actually fight the society yeah. to, okay, we need to collaborate. Oh, I need to give exactly. to society, you know, yeah. and you can see the migration yeah. there for sure. But I want, I want to hear a little bit more because, you know, words, books, yeah. uh, your writing, you're, you're um, always running that documents your uh, early life. Um, yeah. You know, there's so much wonderful words come out of you. And I know books have been part of your yeah, uh, salvation. I don't know if that's the right way, but part of yeah. your, your medicine. It is. And I think medicine might be even more appropriate. I, I think it is a destiny thing for me. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't be about words. It, I didn't grow up in a world, a word family in the sense that my dad was a learned man in Mexico, but he worked in industry. He worked, he graduated, he res, uh, resi- uh, retired as a janitor. But the word books weren't in our community. You know what I'm saying? Our library had maybe five books. You know, it was that kind of a thing where I found it on my own when I went downtown and I would, you know, that beautiful downtown library has means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Susan uh, Olean wrote a beautiful book called The Library. Uh, it's great because it's about that library. And, but anyway, the thing about it is that it became a destiny thing because nothing spoke to me as deeply as words and language. Mm-hmm. 
And I was a person that didn't have a command of either one of those things. I couldn't speak Spanish at home. I mean, I could speak it at home, but I couldn't speak in the schools. I speak it now because my parents always spoke Spanish. The day they died, over 50 years in this country, they never spoke English. Um, but I got punished in schools for speaking it in those days. You got, I got swatted once. I got punished in schools after school for having, saying it was Spanish. And then they didn't teach us English very well. Mm-hmm. So I really struggled to break the silence that kind of was imposed. And the, my struggle was, I'm going to be like Malcolm X, like um, George Jackson to James Baldwin. And again, I was reading all these uh, African-American writers. So anybody that's out there, I'm going to be like them. I'm going to be mm-hmm. into words. And uh, it became a destiny thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize. Now I'm all about books. You know, you got, got, I got 16 <laughs> books, but also I got a bookstore. Yeah. I have a own press. <laughs> yes. <I'm> a <laughs> so, well, yeah. you were also the poet laureate of Los Angeles yeah. in 2014. It was an amazing, amazing recognition that the city of Los Angeles where I had this love-hate relationship with uh, would give me this honor. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's amazing. So in the library that you're speaking of, was that part of in Los Angeles? So you actually ended up, did you ever- So what happened at 15, I I was thrown out of my house um, and I was in the streets and I was, you know, homeless. Mm -hmm. And um, I would have a 22 handgun to mug people. I'm just being honest, you know. Um, I, I, I would survive whatever I could. I didn't trust anybody. I used to hang with some other homeless people during the day, but at night I always slept my own place, separate alone away from others. I would score on heroin. I was in bad shape, yeah. bad shape. But here I am walking around and I see this beautiful downtown library, big, beautiful building. And I'm walking in there and a lot of homeless people there. They're, you know, they're cleaning up and everything. Yeah. So I'm cleaning up like everybody else. But I start wandering these books and they were really amazing. They were a storehouse of beautiful, imaginatory life that I really needed, that I didn't have at the time. It opened up my imagination. And I read everything I could. Ray Bradbury, who actually wrote some of his books at that library, I loved his work because I just read uh, in the Martian Chronicles and Something Wicked This Way Comes and Fahrenheit 451. I was reading all Ray Bradbury. And then I started picking up even a Charter's Web. You know, I read that book like 20 times. I loved that book. It made me cry at the end. You know, it's like books were a wondrous garden that I had never had a been in and it really opened me up that's beautiful i'm loving the image of you in the raw you know trochimoche la vida loco and then this 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 culture this 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 uh when society used to invest really consciously in its culture in a good way and 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 that that became a a refuge for you uh uh, alma mater so And, and i and i should add that when the mayor of los angeles eric garcetti bestowed me this poor lawyer thing. He did it at that library and he didn't know that story. And I told that story. (laughs) I used to walk here at 15 years old, homeless, lost on drugs. Mm. And here I am now I'm back all these years getting this beautiful thing. So there's a couple of things I I see as uh, next step conversation points. But one of the things I really am interested in about your life is the migration of your, of your journey and the different Mm -hmm. places and things that you have touched in your life. You've touched so many places from, I think, Salvadorian or Guatemalan Mm -hmm. prison situations Mm -hmm. to working in the steel mills to the things we've already talked about and that you're doing right now. And the the quantity of variable 
situations from being a vice presidential candidate yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to a gubernatorial yeah, exactly. candidate, uh, which yeah. I did vote for you. Um, there you go. Th- those, yeah. those, um, those migrations, um, yeah. what, what, like, you know, as you reflect but, on it. Yeah. And I don't want to get too long on this, but I do want to say the migrations probably have to start with the Ramuri people of Chihuahua, Mexico. That was my mother's tribal roots. Uh, and, 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 Bless her that she always reminded me about that. A lot of Mexicans don't know where tribes are from. They're all indigenous at some level, but they don't know. And she always said, we're Raramuri, which people call the Tarumara. In fact, that's what mom would say. We're the Tarumara. I found out when I was there that they call themselves Raramuri, not Tarumara. But anyway, it didn't matter. Um, I was very, what is this? I want to know this. None of my brothers and sisters were interested but me. You know, I was like, what? Give me this more stuff. And so I went down there. And that was important migration because then I found my indigenous connection. And um, it's important for me because that means that I don't consider myself an immigrant to this country. I was born in El Paso, Texas. We lived across the border, Ciudad Juarez. But as I say, one of my, my latest book, From Our Land to Our Land, my mother, had when she had me born, went across the International Bridge to El Paso, had me born. We went from our land to our land. Because the Chihuahua Desert, where the Radamari people live, encompasses parts of Texas, New Mexico, and of course the Chihuahua State, and I think part of Sonora. So this is our land. Uh, the Radamari have been there at least 10,000 years. So I am actually very connected there. Uh, the fact that I might have a bunch of other stuff besides native is immaterial. I'm not a fractured person. I am native in every way that I can imagine, except, of course, that I don't have that traditional tribal connection. I don't have a reservation. I I don't have the language. I don't know, you know, but I did go down there to meet with them and they helped me understand the migration that I went through. Um, A working class Mexican migrant family ended up in Watts and East LA and working in industry. And that also opened up a whole new world. We weren't supposed to be writers and thinkers and scientists. We were being geared for the LA industry, which people don't know was the largest in the country. I mean, they think about Chicago, Detroit, you know, Cleveland. They think about all these great cities, but LA had more manufacturing than any other city. And I worked in all those. I worked in paper mills. I worked in construction. I worked in foundries. I worked in uh, the the chemical refinery. I worked in the steel mill. In other words, that was the only way out of the gang life um, was to work. And so that was another trajectory. And I wrote a whole novel on it called Music of the Mill. Mm-hmm. that uh, was trying to tell that story fiction-wise, but it was trying to tell that story of the migration. So for me, it was important that I had that. But one of the things, again, the struggle to be a writer was I really don't want to end up this way. I love working, by the way. I was a mechanic, pipe fitter, welder. I did all this work. I don't do any of it anymore. <laughs> we hire plumbers, man. I can do plumbing in my house. I just don't do it. Uh, I was a carpenter for years. I can build things, but I, I just don't do it. I decided my world is going to be writing. And that became a journalist. That was the big struggle yeah. to me, become a journalist. And and as you know, uh, I did it in daily newspapers, weekly newspapers. I did it for magazines. I did it for news radio for many years. Uh, I worked for CNN, NBC, Westinghouse. I did a lot of, but I also got blacklisted, especially in daily newspapers because of my politics, because I was trying to tell the story of my community. And it was... Um, some people were very upset and I got blacklisted. I couldn't work in that industry after a while. So that's part of my story. Uh, one of the things I want to point out that I also, as a journalist, did freelancing. 
So my freelancing took me to Mexico in uprisings, the indigenous uprisings of Oaxaca and, and even Baja, where the Mesteco natives were enslaved in these tomato fields and all the way to um, uh, Nicaragua and Honduras, where there was a Contra war in the Sandinistas and the Contras in the U.S. was involved by arming these Contras. And I uh, got bombed twice there and had a 50 caliber bullet come at me. You know, I was in the middle of war zone as a journalist, you know, and I survived it all. I survived the, all the people that shot me when I, when I was a kid. I survived all that. But all those experiences were helpful because then I began to realize the world that I was in. I probably the hardest thing, that, which I, I write in my second memoir, was I worked in San Bernardino, California as a daily newspaper reporter when they had the second highest murder rate in the country. And people may not know, San Bernardino is a hard, man, rootin' tootin' cowboy town, as somebody once called it. It is hardcore. There is, you can't, it's no joke. A lot of uh, poverty, a lot of crime, and even now it's one of the poorest cities in the country. And I was there and I saw more dead bodies than you ever want to see. They had me as a crime reporter. And uh, I was there for two years, but man, two years I saw, you know, multiple murders. I saw terrible car accidents, fires. I was in the middle of a, the big Paramount fire that burned about 500 buildings. And I was in the middle of it, as, again, as a reporter, but I'm stuck there trying to save myself because it could be pretty harrowing. I, I learned a lot. Again, um, the kind of experiences that a lot of people don't have. In those days, by the way, reporters could be right there with the police and the dead bodies. They don't really allow that no more. But you, you were there, sometimes I'd beat them because I would have a 40-channel radio in my little V-dub and I could hear what was going on. I would beat the cops and I'd be there with dead bodies waiting for the cops. I wouldn't move anything, waiting for the cops to show up. And, and they would actually give me access to the corners. I knew the corners, so they gave me access to the corners when I needed to. It was a different time. It's harrowing and it's traumatic. Yes. <laughs> on top of other trauma. That's yes. Yes. And so from, from the revolutions, from the, the, the identity, I mean, I'm going back to the, mm. your mom and the, yeah. uh, the, the indigenous identity she was able to impart to you, or at least you got interested enough. And I see that as kind of like a weapon or a tool as a way out of the narrow imagination the culture was offering you as a Mexican immigrant. Exactly. Right? I, I felt, that, yeah. mm. no, no, but in other words, I felt like I belonged yeah. In spite of what other people were saying, I belonged yeah. here. I remember walking down the street and people in their pickups would say, go back to where you came from. And I was like, I am where I came from. It was really weird that now the brown-skinned people don't belong in this country. It's really weird how we become the aliens and foreigners. It's just maddening, but I know I belong. I know that much. And the, and the ignorance is so so great that I even heard in the, in, the, um, in the tribal communities in the Southwest, I'm not sure if it was the Navajo, but that there was people shouting at, at uh, you know, indigenous Navajo to go, mm-hmm. to, to leave, to go back to their country. Know. You know, mm-hmm. so the ignorance is very deep. And um, I was also listening, I don't know if you caw- uh, Alexander, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's yeah. uh, speech today on the floor. It was quite powerful. She had to stand up against all this abuse. And again, people don't realize, well, maybe they do. Uh, There's constant abuse if you're black and brown. Mm -hmm. But the other side of it is that I think, and I see it in what she was saying. We actually love this country. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know black and brown, as pissed off as we might be about racism and anything else, as you know, almost all of them, disproportionately to other people, have fought in every war, have tried to be part of this country in some form or fashion. Um, and we 
all of us feel like, you know, we're not going anywhere. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. People say, go leave the country if you don't like it. We ain't going anywhere. Um, and what's going to have to shift is that, that, that whole concept of white supremacy, which is a made up concept anyway. It's all made up anyway. Mm-hmm. They've made up the whole scenario. I mean, the people are talking about cancel cultures. You have no idea what cancel culture is. When, <laughs> when Trump was there at Mount Rushmore, praising all these things and talking about cancer culture, much more is the epitome of cancer culture. And so it's like, they have, they don't have no clue what they're doing. They're standing on ground that's muddy and they don't even know. And they don't really know that they're actually in the quicksand. They're falling into it. Their ideologies are thinking it's falling down. It can't, it can't hold up. When they're taking down statues, it's really not just the statues. They're taking down all that uh, facades that were built on top of other facades and at the expense of other people. It really did. At the expense of other identities. And that was what was so dignified about uh, AOC today when I listened to it is the way Mm. she chose to educate for the society she was trying to argue for and, and, and call out what needed to be called out. I remember the first time I, in 98, um, when we were in Chicago and we were at the retreat center and I was with Frank and, uh, and a few other, oh, maybe, yeah, from, uh, yeah, our Chicago little group. Yeah, young, I, I, you I, struggling I, for survival. Yeah. yeah. With you struggling for survival. And I was in the van and I'd been to Chicago before for men's retreats and, and yeah. stuff, but I was in the van with a bunch of Brown brothers and I, I suddenly became aware of something I wasn't aware of. I was on the inside of the van and I was aware of what it felt like to be brown and how I just felt it. I just became aware of it. And it's something I couldn't see before until I was with, until I had that shared common uh, interplay. And plus you're, you're open. A lot of people may not be as open as you are, but you're, you have always had an open heart. I've always known you that way. So it's good. And one of the, again, another identity issue is that I work with gangs for 45, 50 years. I left the gangs, but I couldn't forget any of them. And I've been going to prisons, another one of my identities, and I've been for 40 years teaching, doing healing circles, poetry, talks, whatever. And uh, that work we did in Chicago, I did work with heavy duty gang kids. Uh, the most of them were Mexican, Puerto Rican. We did do some work with African-Americans, but we did have this really good core, mostly Mexican, Puerto Rican kids that we were working with. And my son was the catalyst because as you know, yeah. uh, you know Ramiro, he joined a gang. He got very active and ended up doing uh, almost 15 years in prison. Yeah. And that's the other part of my world, you know, trying to deal with a son who part of mass incarceration that I was trying to avoid all my life to see my own son enter that. So that's part of, again, the father stuff we can talk about. But that's important experience, working with these troubled kids and giving yeah. them something, mentioned, guidance, love, support, whatever they need, you know. I, I loved uh, prepping for this this time together today. And one of the things that I, I thought about was, um, you know, what is particularly from the, the, the all the gang youth work that you've done and the community work, what is some of the advice you find yourself giving to young people who are in gangs that seems to like continue to hold true? I tell you that the number one thing that seems to impact, even when I go to the prisons, is... I call it owning your life. Because not too many other things scares you. See, these kids aren't good for scared straight. Scared straight is not meant for them. You know, scared way, straight is They're way for, past that. They're way past exactly. that. Yeah. Yes. And so that prison doesn't scare them. Getting shot doesn't scare them. You'd be surprised. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm game. But what really scares them, if you make it clear, is that they turn their life over to drugs, 
to gangs, to other things, uh, that they've turned their life over to a plan that others have created mm -hmm. and not their own, what they're here to do. What is their purpose? And it's scary because we're not comfortable with that. Who teaches us that we have our own innate purpose yeah. and that we need to think about where we're going about it and how to, how to take care of that, how to be attentive to it? Who teaches that? So the more that I pursue that angle, it tends to be more like deeper uh, about what I'm saying. I don't try to judge them and I don't try to tell them what to do and I don't tell them, gotta be a good citizen. Now I tell them, just be that person you were aimed to be. Yeah. What is your soul telling you? That gets, and it gets kind of spiritual and maybe religious, but a lot of people don't really like that. But in the end, it's speaking about these things without having the, the confines of yeah. the religious jacket, you know? Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, I can see why that's powerful because it, it is, and, and there's such a way in which the context of society and culture don't equip, you know, it's been stripped away because if we, you know, if we really have our purpose, then, you know, we don't follow other people's plans. Exactly. I want to go towards your father. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about your relationship with your father. And I'm, I'm thinking of a couple things. I'm thinking of the, uh, the library moment. And I think I read somewhere that you're, and you said this, your father was a janitor at a, a yeah. was he at a college? He has a community college, Pierce yep. College. Pierce in College. Fernando Valley. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he was a, a lavatory custodian. So I'm going to tell you a funny story. He cleaned the laboratories of the biology department. He loved it because he actually was um, a biologist in Mexico. He was never recognized for that. But somehow they gave him a job as a custodian for this lab. So my dad would clean all the, the animal stuff. He would clean all the classrooms. They had a little museum. He loved it. He was kind of like the caretaker of the museum. I mean, he really wasn't, but he was cleaning everything. My dad would do this crazy thing. He would steal animals from the lab and bring them home. <laughs> he, he would steal these fossil rocks, rocks with fossils of dinosaurs. He would steal them and bring them home. My crazy dad, you know, yeah. Like, and he didn't even mind telling us. I, he just told him. I, I thought that was kind of weird. He was totally. Mr. Law, law and Order, good citizen. Never, you know, he wasn't like me and my, uh, totally. anyway, but, but he was like weird, but he would steal these things. And he brought me tarantulas. I had a tarantula for a pet. I had a king snake for a pet. I had a turtle for a pet. I had these non-normal <laughs> pets because of my dad. That's a beautiful oh, story. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think every dad, I know my dad like stole like a, ref, like a refrigerator door from like a store yeah. in the 70s or something. I think every, yeah. every dad has their exception. What was your father's name? So he was, his name was Alfonso. Alfonso. So we used to call him Poncho in Mexico. That's a, that's a good derivative for, for Poncho. So my dad was Poncho to my mom. Poncho, there's, I never called him Poncho. I called him dad. Yeah. Uh, papa or Papa. Mm -hmm. Papa is a kind of papa, but cut in half. Anyway, he was my dad. And, um, and I want to say good things about him because there are some terrible things about him. Yeah. But maybe to put it in context, to say that my dad never left my mom, even though my mom left him. Mm -hmm. He was willing to take her back, which is really weird. And uh, she took me uh, and, and my two sisters and my brother away from my dad for a while. We were homeless when we were kids in Watts because she didn't know where to live or nothing. She was going to go back to Mexico. She changed her mind and my dad took her back. My dad um, worked hard, and I have to say, and he loved America. He never spoke English, but he was American dream guy. Mm -hmm. and it was an illusion, I would have to say, mm -hmm. but he tried. You know? mm -hmm. he, 
He bought a house when nobody bought houses in these Mexican communities we were in. Mm-hmm. He bought a house for $12,000 in 1968. It was a small little wood frame, two bedroom thing. But you know what, he, he wanted to own a house. Nobody in the neighborhood owned a house. My, my dad wanted to be there. I and mean, he had this weird idea, but he was part of him living out this dream. And I have to say that was one interesting quality of his. Um, and he, again, he worked hard to the day he died. He never stopped working and he never left the house. And now that's all good about him. And he loved, he's, he did bring books into my life. What I have to say was connected because they were Spanish language books, but he had books. Who had books in their home? I didn't know anybody. So I would read them. Then he'd get this crazy thing. I'm sure you, your family did that. Britannicus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody so, had Britannicus, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, he had, a, I read as much of those Britannicus as I could. I loved them. And really, nobody in my family did. I was, I was totally into, I mean, as bad as I was, gang and everything, I always loved books. I was like weird homie. They used to bring books to the neighborhood. So, hey, but, but everybody knew that was my thing. That's okay. It's his thing. But, uh, I have to give credit to my dad. I think there's some good things there. Um, the not so good things though are very serious. Mm-hmm. My dad, and I'm going to start with the most serious. I'd send my uh, memoir to call you back. And I, um, the worst thing was that he actually was a pedophile. Mm-hmm. And I did not know this growing up. I found out after I left the house and my sisters were molested by him. And of course, Nobody talks about this shit. I, and then when I was in the street, I, I I didn't have to deal with him. And one of my sisters as a grown woman got mad at me and she's kind of mentally ill and she was homeless at the time herself. She's not doing, she wasn't doing too well at the time. She's okay now, but she was she was mad at me for not taking care of her when, she's four years younger than me. When I should, when I was in the street, she says, you're the only one who stood up to my dad and you're the only one who stood up to my mom, but you wouldn't dare for me. That was sad. I was like, I didn't even know. So if I'd known, I would have probably killed the guy. I mean, I, I mean maybe it's better I didn't know. I don't know. But I, it's sad that that world was happening. He never molested me or my brother because he apparently didn't like little boys. And I'm just being crass and real. He liked the, the girls, little girls. What happened is he got dementia and he started uh, molesting people without giving a hoot. You know what I'm saying? And they caught him trying to molest my daughter when she was a little girl. She's now 43. So... Um, and that really turned me upside down. Yeah. I've had my world go upside down quite a lot. That was one of the worst things. Yeah. Um, and it's hard. It's hard to address, to deal, to, to even, how do you say, let it sink somewhere. It's hard. It took me a long time to even find something in that. Uh, I hated my father for years and years. He was a cold, emotionless person. Mm-hmm. And that's all I remember of him. He was mm-hmm. not loving. He never said, I love you. Never, he never held you. Never, you know, I had a, I had one experience that where I was playing baseball in a little league and I wanted my dad to show up to a game. He wouldn't show up. So finally we had, there was a father Sunday, dad, you got to show up father and sons come and show up. And eh, he got a little bit annoyed, but he's okay. I'll take you. So I'm getting on my little uniform, had my glove and bar was nine years old. And I went in the car and he got in the car and the car wouldn't start. And he cussed at the car and he just got out of the car, went around and went back in the house and I'm waiting for him and he doesn't come out. I'm waiting and waiting. My dad doesn't come out. Yeah. So then I just get out on my own and I walk all the way to the baseball area myself without my dad. And that was, I was nine years old and that was my last time I ever expected anything from him. Mm-hmm. I even said, I've never asked him for nothing. Yeah. It's, that's the kind of person he was. That's the worst part of it. Yeah. Um, but again, it was colored by a very hardworking, sweet guy that everybody said was the nicest guy you ever wanted to meet. You know how... Mm-hmm. 
And so here's the problem. I couldn't make a monster out of him. When I wrote about him and called you back, I really couldn't. He's a human being, complex human being that fucked up, fucked up royally. And I wasn't going to leave him off the hook, but I wasn't going to make him this monster either. I can't do that. Uh, that's the problem with these people that hurt you, these fathers and even others who abuse you. They're sometimes the ones you love the most. And so the end of all this was uh, when my dad died, uh, I was in Chicago and my mom, I wouldn't see him. He, was a, he had stomach cancer. He was all emaciated. I don't know if you know about stomach cancer, but it eats you up. And he's, mm-hmm. my mom says, she calls me up and she says, he's going to die today. And he was at the home, he, you know, with morphine and everything. They had him all there in the house. And he's going to die today and you need to talk to him. I said, I don't want to talk to him. She says, you need to talk to him. And, she says, and I said, mom, I don't want to talk to him. And then she just put the phone to his ear. And I could hear him breathing and it was very labored. And of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to curse him out. I'm going to curse him out to the world, you know, send him to hell. That's the way I thought I'm going to, you know, that, but you know what? I couldn't even do that. And the only thing I could tell him was, I love you, dad. It was the only thing that came out of me. And also because he never said that to me, but I don't know something about me and maybe my own soul is I couldn't do that to him. I couldn't, I had to leave him in a way that he couldn't even deal with me. It was for my benefit more than him. Mm-hmm. My mom said he actually had an expression. He couldn't say anything. And then soon after he did die, which took maybe a couple hours, but he did die that day. Um, it was better for me to do that. And again, I'm not leaving him off the hook. In my book, he's going to be known as a pedophile. I don't know anybody. He hurt my family. He destroyed the whole family mm-hmm. with all this stuff. But on the other hand, I want people to be aware. The sad thing about it is the people we love are sometimes the ones that hurt us the most. And that's what people have to know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm honestly, I'm overwhelmed, uh, with the, uh, the, the, the difficulty of trying to reconcile those things. And I, I have a lot of, uh, compassion. I mean, you probably know this, but, uh, one of the hard stories in my own life that I had, um, when I was 13, um, I, uh, woke up, my mom was dating her going to be her new husband. I woke up on the couch and they had come back from a date. Mm-hmm. I was like the fall asleep to Johnny Carson and stuff when I was young. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I woke up and I heard her telling a story about the time my father held a gun to her. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be hearing the story, but I didn't want to mm-hmm. let them know that I was awake. Mm-hmm. And so I was caught in this predicament mm-hmm. of, 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 you know, I knew my dad was uh, a rageaholic at times, mm-hmm. could be physically violent, um, verbally, mm-hmm. you know, abusive. But to hear this particular story um, impacted me deeply. And yeah. it, it's not yeah. an easy thing to reconcile um, the shadow in, in a man's life, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, and yet it, the easy way out is, uh, is hatred. I hear you saying of hatred yeah. and rejection yeah. um, somehow hurts us maybe more than it does if we can find yeah. some way to reconcile. Yeah. So I, I appreciate your attempt there and I appreciate the hardship of it. And, you know, my, my honest reflection is, you know, it's like a series of disappointments from your father, mm-hmm. like across your life, at least my, the, the mm-hmm. what I was lucky enough to have is my dad stopped those things. Mm-hmm. He learned, he evolved oh, good. And, yeah. and, and he, he became yeah. more aware of his faults and trying to reconcile and actually impart something. 
Yeah. He always tried to do that, but I think he was doing it from a more loving place rather than like a, a power place. Um, and, uh, finding out about your sister, finding out, you know, each thing and those, your own daughter that, 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 that kept going. And that's, that's very painful to have that through the series. So I don't want to focus on that as, as the only thing here. What I'm really curious is when it broke, who, who built it? Who did you find that, that restored you could trust in men that you could, that you could be seen and that a man would be present for you? Um, where did you start to fix that? Obviously, you know, gangs are an attempt at that, but where did it really start to find its healing? I, I had a mentor in, in, in the gang, and I call him a mentor. He didn't call himself that. We didn't even use those terms. Uh, I, in my book, I call him Chenta. He had another real name, um, but I didn't want to use his real name. But he, um, he saw something in me that I couldn't see in myself because I was really bad shape, and he shouldn't have given me the time of day. But he saw that I was graffitiing all the walls, and he saw there's an artist there. He saw that I could speak. I was articulate for being a gangster. Uh, he saw that I was smart, but I wasn't in school. And he just felt that, that he needed to help this kid. He could see that I was fatherless, even though I actually a father, but I, didn't, I wasn't being fathered. And, uh, and so he kind of filled in a very important gap. And at first I told him to drop dead. I don't want anything to do with you. Get out of my life. You know, I gave him a hard time. And to his credit, he kept coming back. He never really got messed up about it. I'm sure I... I can imagine he had those days where like, I'm so tired of this kid. I feel like, <laughs> I know I never witnessed it, but I'm sure he had, oh man, this guy's no good. But he always came back and he was always trying to be solid. And I'll tell you something about it but, so people would know. He, didn't, he did counterintuitive things. For example, I used to love guns and I had guns from the gangs, you know. I used to have all these weapons. I never really learned how to use them. I would use them stupidly. Uh, I've shot at people. Luckily, nobody got killed. Um, I've shot at people. I've been arrested for that. I've stabbed people and all these kind of things. I've been through a number, a number of violent things. But what he would do counterintuitively would say, "Why don't you learn how to shoot a gun?" What? Yeah, learn how to shoot it. So he took me to the mountains, San Gabriel Mountains, beautiful mountains in LA, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and took me to these areas where we could shoot guns and learn how to shoot them. And I'll tell you why it was helpful. I don't have any guns now. I don't want a relationship with guns. I just don't care for them. But it helped me to respect. A powerful thing. You know what I'm saying? To learn to respect powerful things. Mm-hmm. Instead of playing around and then you're going to kill somebody. So how stupid is that going to be? You know how many guys in prisons I had to talk to who have killed people and like, ah, man, it's stupid. But um, just to respect the life, for example, I used to like to fight all the time. So he would say, get into martial arts. I said, what the? I thought martial arts was like a sissy thing. Oh, boy, I learned in martial arts what a beautiful, amazing thing it is. I took martial arts for a while. I never did tournaments, never got belts, but I did it. And it helped me understand the, the beauty of the body, the beauty of space, the beauty of energy, how to utilize it, all this stuff. It teaches you. And I, I'll be honest with you, I haven't had a drag out, knockdown fight in about maybe 35 years. I've had a lot of close ones. I have people coming at me. I've had guns <laughs> pulled on my head, but I've okay. had to talk people out. I've had to learn how to not... I just haven't had to do that anymore, but I can. If somebody comes at me, I know what to do, you know. But the point is, is like the more you know about it, the more you kind of can flow. It's interesting. What he was teaching me was that. And so I tell people, he didn't save me. He gave me the tools, resources, and connections so I could save myself. That's what I have to give him credit for. So he did fill that gap. 
that a father should have done. And he did it as a mentor, which again, he wasn't my father. He wasn't acting like my father. He was just filling a very important gap of men, missing men, that I think later on helped me understand more about what my role as a father had to be, but also how I had to be a mentor to others. Mm-hmm. And how to what age were you when you had this relationship with Chente? Uh, he came into my life, I think I was um, 16 years old. Mm-hmm. Again, many times, get the hell out of here. How do I even do with you? But he never gave up. And by the time I was 18, and I did my, I did get convicted and I did uh, serve it in the men's county jail in Los Angeles. Um, on my own, I, I quit heroin in the county jail. I quit being involved in the gang, especially the prison life gang that was coming at me. I quit a lot of things because he had given me what I needed to know so that I can make those decisions. He wasn't there in the jail with me. He wasn't making these decisions. Quitting heroin is one of the hardest things it, it, that I know of. It's one of the hardest things I ever had to do. How'd you and, do it? Uh, How did you do I it? I did it cold, what's called cold turkey. Mm-hmm. Because people don't know that in those days in the black and brown communities, there was no recovery programs. There was no methadone. Methadone was already around. We couldn't access it. The only thing there was, was the general hospital where you can go in there just to be tested for hip C free testing. And at that time, they weren't giving out free needles, but they were trying to keep you healthy so that you knew that, and they would tell you stuff like, don't share needles, uh, which is probably helpful because uh, most of the guys I know that were heroin addicts then are all dying from liver damage from all the hep C. I, I didn't get hep C, which is great and powerful. A lot of it because I decided that I would, what we call our ed is our rig, uh, I would do most of my shooting by myself or girlfriends or close homies. That was just me. I just didn't have those, like, a lot of addicts would shoot up with anybody that showed up. You got heroin, do let's share. That's the way it was. Uh, and I didn't do it because I knew better. <laughs> it just worked out that way. The point is that um, Chente gave me enough knowledge, awareness, and again, relationship-wise, that I could make a d- deep decision in jail, which is the hardest place. And I was facing prison terms, so I thought I was going to do all the time in prison, so I was prepared. And one of the, again, one of the reasons why I wanted to get out heroin, because if you're on heroin and you go to prison, you're owned by everybody. So only my life was already beginning to come to yes. my head. Yes. I was going to do state time. I wasn't going to do it as an addict. I was going to be easy picking. No, I ain't going to do that. I mean, it was hard. I actually loved heroin. I had heroin, heroin was a great high. It was, mm-hmm. I, I loved be, being in that high. Uh, though eventually, if you do it long enough, it doesn't, you don't get high anymore. Yeah. I, I, one of the uh, researchers that I've seen around uh, emotions and brains that the, the heroin and the opioids, what they do mm. is they help access a sense of being loved. Mm. They, they go into the nurturing instinct in the brain and they make you feel as if you're nurtured. And yeah. I've, I've heard that and I'm like, that makes so much sense in terms of what I see, why someone could on the exterior be in a disarray, but on the interior have the yeah. sense of contentment and the sense of yeah. peace. And I'm wondering if you resonate with that, that there was a, yeah. a maternal quality or a sense of feeling okay or peace in relationship when you were. Yeah, I call it the, de- the peace of, of death in life. Mm-hmm. There's a certain peace when I think about dying. And I think it was a way of dying. And I was kind of like on a suicide trip anyway. Uh, I wanted that piece of death because I thought that, that must be the most wonderful thing. I didn't think about heaven or nothing. I just thought about when I'm dead, I'm at peace. What it does, it makes you not want to feel pain. 
any kind of pain, emotional pain as well as physical pain, but it, you know, mostly it's emotional. And I have a poem called The Peace of Death in Life because I learned one thing. I have to be um, involved with pain. <laughs> it's, it's weird, but when you're an addict, you have to learn how to live with pain because pain is, keeps me alive. And when I have pain, I am life living. You know what I'm saying? And that means emotional pain as well as other pain. I'm not saying you can't address it. I'm not saying you can't deal with it. I'm just saying don't get to the point where you want to numb out because that's the power of heroin. And I did every drug in the world, but heroin was the one that I guess spoke to me more because of what you were saying. Yeah. The way you just push everything out to the sense of, I call it the peace of death in life. I don't know what else to call it. And it is kind of like a mothering or that you don't have a kind of nurturing where your brain, the chemicals that get pulled in are the ones that happen when you get that nurturing properly. And uh, you don't get it properly, then you do it synthetically. It messes you up, but it's still, that's what you're going for. So besides Chente, who else started to, to pull you into a sense of... Um... So the other person was when I got involved with all these revolutionary politics, mm -hmm. I got mentored by um, a Marxist, uh, African-American guy who came out of Watts. I, I grew up in Watts, went to East LA, but then when I got involved with politics, I moved back to Watts in my early 20s. I, I had my wife and my two oldest kids were born in that area. Um, he was my teacher, but he, I, but the problem I made him my, my father figure, which was a mistake. Um, and I've known for 40 years and I got deeply betrayed by him. Mm. I put so much behind him and was so taken by, he was a great speaker. He had been in World War II and those all African, they call it all Negro units. He has great stories. He's actually written books about this. And he was a teacher to a lot of people, but he was also a, very, a big bully. And he was also somebody that could see how vulnerable you were. And in his own emotional way, he never did anything beyond emotion, but he can control very hungry men like me. And, you know, men like us who, where's my dad? Where's my dad? You're my dad. And he took advantage of it into the point where he could betray me uh, and turn away from me and make me feel like shit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's sad because no, it's he, shouldn't, he shouldn't have the power over me like that. You know, but that's what happened. And of course, I learned it from it and I realized that, as you know, uh, I did a lot of work with Michael Mead and Michael Mead is my good friend and everything, but I never wanted to do that to Michael. He's a, <laughs> he's a great friend. He's 10 years older than me. I never wanted to make yeah. him a father figure. So me and him have a very more solid relationship because we never put ourselves in that kind of, as you know, me and Michael, we've had our tensions, we've sure. had our moments, but we're always in a good, respectful way with each other because we've never put ourselves in the wrong perspective, you know, mm -hmm. so that helped having gone through with this guy it helped me not to do that to Michael. Got it. Got it. Yeah, no, I resonate with that. In my own life story around feeling vulnerable around that father need, which mm -hmm. opened up a lot of doors for me um, uh, in terms of relationship and some, some really positive things. Yeah. There was definitely vulnerable moments around that. Um, but how did you then begin to find the father inside you? Because I know mm -hmm. um, there was turmoil in your early relationships yeah. and it was a, still quite a journey for you. How did you find, you know, and I think we're all still yeah. finding, I'm still finding my fathering part of the reason yeah. I'm having these conversations. But okay. what would you have to say about that, Luis? Well, here's what I would say. I had my two kids very early on. My son, Ramiro, was born at 20. And by 20, I was never going back to the crazy life. I'd been to the jails. I'd been, heroin was already, I left heroin about a year before. I found this beautiful young Chicana who was not in gangs, 
It was, and I thought, this is the love of my life. We got married. She was only two months out of high school when I married her. I, I called her my high school sweetheart. But um, it, it was young, full of illusions. I started working at Bethlehem Steel. I thought the whole world would come together. And about three and a half years later, we were done. <laughs> it, was, it was a terrible relationship. She was immature. I was immature. And I had these two babies. And like my father, who abandoned me emotionally, he might have come home, watched TV, you know, but he wasn't there. I abandoned my kids, literally. I, when I broke up with their mom, I was done with them too. It was kind of sad. I didn't mean for that to happen, but she was such a pain in the butt to deal with. And then I just said, I'm not dealing with any of them, which is sad. My son, Ramiro, needed me. And here I was making this promise, you know, for, to my boy and my daughter. You know, I love you guys. They're now 45 and 43 years old. This is a long time ago. But now uh, I pretty much abandoned them. So that became the issue because um, when I, my son got into a lot of trouble, I was living in Chicago, and I had a girlfriend now, my current wife. She got pregnant. And I had already two wives before. I had a really rough 20s with relationships, wives, girlfriends, living, people was really rough. Mm -hmm. But I finally found, I did find the love of my life, my wife, Trini. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was my girlfriend and, and uh, Ramiro comes to live with me because his mom can't work, can't handle him. He was 13 years old mm -hmm. and his attitude was, he ain't my dad, he didn't raise me. So he wouldn't listen, it was really rough. He wouldn't listen to my poor wife who, well, she became my wife, my girlfriend became my wife who was trying to be a good stepmom, he wouldn't listen to anything. He joined a gang two years later. In Chicago, I go, oh, no, man, I can't have him in no gang. It was rough, man. And he wasn't going going along with nothing. And again, his attitude was, he didn't raise me. Here, you know, gave me the middle finger the whole time. It was rough. I made a decision. It was a hard decision because I was going to get rid of him. I was going to say, go back. I don't want to do it with you. I even got chased him down the streets, and I, I, I thought I was done with him, but I couldn't. I made a promise. I'm not gonna let him go. I couldn't do it. My parents let me go, I couldn't do it. So it's a promise that I, I kept that I would be on this roller coaster right through hell with this boy. But I was gonna have to do it because I did abandon him. And it was my way of saying I couldn't do it. I, it also helped me become finally sober completely. In 93, I sobered up. I am actually this year, June 30th, 27 years clean and sober. And it was especially around my son and also my new sons, because again, Trini had two other boys. And my daughter came to me too. She was all messed up. So I had to deal with these crazy teenagers and these two babies. But um, it taught me to be focused, to get sober enough after 27 years of drinking and drugs to finally let it go and to try to say, I'm going to be your dad, whether you like it or not. It was rough. My, eventually, when I saw him going to prisons and jails and he ended up doing this prison time, I stood by him the whole time. I remember. Uh, yeah. I remember. Visit him. Yeah, you remember how much we brought him in. All the time. Uh, to all the time. And I, it, it was a, a moving, a terribly moving thing, but it was, we actually got closer finally when he was in prison, which is sad. You no know, father should have to wait to get close to their son while they're mm -hmm. in prison. But we did. Me and my mother actually got closer when he was in prison. And so I think that helped me realize I had to be the father that I didn't have and I didn't know how to be. I had to be there in ways that it was genuine enough because I wasn't going to just play at it. And I stood by Romito all these years, even when I got out. You know, he's this year he's 10 years released from prison. He is 45 years old. He's doing relatively well. I'm mm -hmm. not sure you saw him that too long ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's hanging in there. He still has issues. He had a hard time reintegrating as a prisoner. 
and you know how hard that is, but we, we stood by him. I'm very proud of him considering how hard it is. And I know it's not all rosy and not all great. And you know, you've seen him where he can go off. He's got that capacity. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Like his, like his father. Yeah. So, but we're, we're living together now with uh, my three sons are all here at my house. Can you imagine? They're all grown men. Uh, but I love them and they're great. They're great men. They, they don't take nothing from the family. They're all contributing. Yeah. Some some lady was telling me, you should get rid of them. Uh, well, how do you want your sons there? But you know what? I'm okay with my sons living here. They're, yeah. they're wonderful. They're not, they're not hurting. Well, that's just such a, um, I mean, it's so poignant and um, failures. I've had my own failures uh, as a father um, in my ways. And I think that's something, you know, every man starts out hopeful. Um, but one of the things I've really learned and one of the reasons I want to have this conversation, I'll just say it out loud to you and to the listeners, is really that uh, paternal investment, as it's called in like social biology, is a, is a fragile commodity. It's not a guaranteed mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And, we, you know, I can see from stories I've talked about with other men and, and, and your own story here, Luis, which I really am uh, humble and appreciate you taking the time to share with me today, um, is that it's paternal investment is not a guaranteed thing. And yeah. it, there's certain conditions, stress conditions from identity to colonization, to poverty, to uh, a capitalist kind of narrowed imagination of human life. These things impact men who then impact the world. And um, so I I honor your healing around that. I honor your journey around that. I think that you're courageous in the amount of uh, honesty you have and the bravery you have to to be real with it. And I think that's a model for me and, and other other people and other men. And so it's a, it's a beautiful thing actually to see levels of reconciliation yeah. and, and at this, in this way. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate you giving me the time to speak on these issues. I would should have uh, let people know that I have uh, five uh, grandkids and four great grandkids now. So it's, it's wonderful to see the already two generations after me popping up. So and the, and the, and the progress is happening, right? It's incremental. Yeah. We can see the generational yeah. repair. Yeah, they're very, very true. And I think that's important considering how much gaps there were. Um, it's important that people are finding their way, even when they're not being properly fathered or properly mothered. Um, I've seen more people beginning to find a way through that. So it's good. And the Thank awareness you. of trauma and the culture is growing, you know, just yeah. the, the way white people and other people can recognize the trauma of the black community is starting yeah. to be, okay, yes, this is right. We can't continue to perpetuate this. Um, I do want to, um, uh, two, two things I'm hoping to finish up with today. One is to, um, how can people find out more about you, what you're passionate about, um, and anything you want to say, just inspirational, where you see society needing to go. And then secondly, maybe read a poem or two. Yeah. So what I would say is they can reach me at, uh, It's my own website. And, you can get books there, videos, there's a lot of good stuff. Yeah. And then I also have a, a org, which is uh, my community center bookstore space. And that is dot org. Mm-hmm. You'll see all this. We got virtual open bikes, virtual social justice club, book clubs. We got virtual indigenous cosmology, virtual everything. It's beautiful. Um, and books, virtual bookstore. So we want to get people to buy books through us. It's really beautiful. And then I do want to recommend my own podcast that me and my wife do. 
uh, the Hummingbird Cricket Hour. Beautiful. And we've, yeah, so it's beautiful. Me and, her, me and her have been doing these. And it's more indigenous cosmology, but we address all the issues that mm-hmm. we can. Great. And and the only thing that I would say is where we're going. I think we're going, which I think it should be. Um, I don't think it's about trying to fix what's broken by just coming up with another program. I think it really is about the imagination. I think we don't do ourselves justice unless we know how to be in that imaginative, creative space. It's not answerable or not solution-based or nothing. It's just be imaginative about where we need to go. I know people want to bring in solutions and they already have a lot of answers to everything, which is good. But I don't, and I'm not saying they're all bad. I'm just saying one thing I learned after all these years is you don't want to have all the answers until you've imagined what should be. Because really the problems already give you the answer. You know, they're already telling you this is the way you got to go. But imagine it. And I think that imaginative process is beautiful. It's important. It keeps us engaged. And it also means that I'm not imposing what I think. It's not a political solution. You know what I'm saying? It might arise out of the imagination, but I'm not giving just a political thing. It's more like, let's be imaginative and open and converse and dialogue. And let's, well, what would you imagine things to be that would be exactly different than it needs to be? while at the same time taking forward all the good stuff that needs to be. You don't have to start from scratch any time. You know that. There's a lot of good things that humanity has done. And there's also a lot of things that should go away. So you're pushing back and forth. So I think that's where I'm at. Uh, Pushing back the things that need to die, that need to go away, and pushing forward the things that need to be reborn and or renewed. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you, Jeffrey. Yeah, yeah, Luis, thank you. Um, Do you have a poem you would like to share? So, yeah, and you know, I, um, I want to do a poem from a really long poem, but I'll just read the end part. Okay. It's about my dad, and it's called Death Watch, because in many ways, because he was so cold and withdrawn, I watched him dying before he was dying. I always felt like he was a, a man without a soul. He was walking physically, active again, work, coming home, you know, but he was soulless. He had, and you know, fathers like that. And you know what, what I need to point out, my dad was born during the Mexican Revolution and grew up through a part of it. He never talked about what he went through. Mexican Revolution was a tremendously violent upheaval. A lot of people died. A million people died in a million refugees when the country in Mexico only had 15 million people, which is the size of Guatemala today. My dad lived through it. He had never, I never heard a story from him. He told me one story when he was apparently seven or eight years old, he witnessed a man getting killed with machetes which is one of the worst ways anybody could die. And he wouldn't say anymore. I mean, he just mentioned that because when I was getting all this gang stuff, he thought maybe it would scare me. It didn't scare me. I was like, dad, you never told me that. My dad went crazy. He had dementia. And because he was a pedophile that cops were going to, um, uh, because now he didn't care what anybody thought, the cops had caught him trying to molest some girls at a park. So they took, took him home and they told my mom, and I wasn't there, but they told me, we don't want to put him in jail. He's in his late 70s. He's not going to make it. But if you don't get him away from everybody and don't get him some therapy, we're going to come and get him and put him in jail. We can't have him out there. You can't do this. I have to give cops credit for that, <laughs> you know, that they were trying to say, it's in your hands. If we see him out there, we're going to arrest him. Mm-hmm. And so my mom did, which is weird. That was her decision. She locked him in his room. She had him imprisoned in the house. He couldn't go out anywhere. When she let him out, 
yeah, he could maybe walk around a little bit. She would give him food and things. And he went crazy in that room. And one day he was out. I think she was, he was going to the doctor's. Uh, my brother took me to the doctor's and my mom took me in there to see the room. And I'm going to read you the poem. And it goes like this. All around the room are mounds of papers, junk mail, coupons, envelopes, unopened and empty. Much of this sticking out of drawers and floor piles in a shapeless heap in the corner. On the wooden end of a bed is a ball made up of thousands of rubber bands. Cereal boxes are thrown about everywhere, some half full. There are writing tablets piled on one side, filled with numbers, numbers without pattern, that he, he wrote over and over, obsessed. And then I speak to him. For years, your silence was greeting and departure, a vocal disengagement. I see you now walking around in rags, your eyes glued to Spanish language telenovelas, keen to every nuance of voice and movement, which you rarely gave to me. This silence is now comfort. We almost made it, huh, Pop? From the times when you came home and gathered up children in both arms as wide as a gentle wind to this old guy, visited by police and social workers, talking to air, accused of lunacy. I never knew you. Losing you was all there was. So. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much, Luis. Um, you've left me with so many images. Um, uh, one is that, you know, just seeing your father as somewhat a, a casualty of the mm -hmm. uh, Mexican Revolution. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And it's hard to tell, you know, what war does, but look what it yeah. does across generations there. Yeah. And uh, the other image I'm loving is um, is you. I just see the. I don't. I don't know what the library looks like, but I'm seeing a white yeah. tower. I'm seeing just a white, beautiful yeah. building, and you struggling yeah. and ragged and finding your way into the world of words and literature. So How thank amazing. you. I know yeah. so amazing, but thank you for following yeah. your destiny and finding yeah. and owning your life. Thank you, man. Thank you for letting me be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please follow us on your favorite streaming platform and share our podcast with your community and friends. All music is composed by the incredible Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. To learn more about this show, our guest, as well as Jeffrey and his work helping people find peace with their human nature, go to howhumanswork.us. Until next time.